0: Hey, everybody, and welcome to Healthy Discourse. It's Emily here, and I'm very excited to welcome our special guest today, Dr. Bose Ravenel. And we have done another episode together on a somewhat similar topic, relative to COVID at least. But today, we are going to talk about the expected emergency use authorization for the new Pfizer COVID shot for Um, five to 11-year-olds. Is that correct, Dr. Robnell? Yes. Yep, that's the ages. So welcome to Healthy Discourse. We're so glad to have you again, and thank you for your time. Um, Let's just dive right in. So last week, Pfizer proposed to the FDA the emergency use authorization of a somewhat different dose, if I'm correct, um, of the Pfizer vaccine for COVID-19 for children ages 5 to 11. When do you think, I mean, based upon how things have worked so far, do you expect that they will move forward with this authorization, and do you think they'll do it quickly?
1: First of all, your guess is as good as mine. None of us knows. <laughs> but my, my intuition is that because so much of COVID has become politicized, I suspect it's a largely politically... Uh, Influenced situation. Right. Right. And, uh, so I'm, I'm, I wouldn't be surprised to see it UA authorized within the next weeks.
0: Yeah, that's kind of what my thoughts are as well. And, you know, I watched bits and pieces of the booster shot, um, the, the session that they had to discuss the booster shots and Although it seemed like there were many questions asked and a lot of the panel members wanted further research and so forth, that didn't seem to matter when it came down to the vote. And so I expect that that might be the same thing that we see happen here. Yeah.
1: Um, agree. Yeah.
0: Well, let's dive into some of the considerations that parents have because, you know, I think that looking back um, over the last since January, I don't know that all of us expected, at least I didn't, um, that we would be at a place where all of these mandates and requirements on such a broad scale have erupted. And I think it would be short-sighted not to expect something similar to happen with our children when this is emergency use authorized. And so the response of parents early on is going to be pivotal for what happens next. And so um, I would love for you just to talk about where. what are your thoughts right now on what this emergency use authorization might mean in the immediate future as well as in the long term um, as it comes to benefits and or concerns when it comes to our children and these proposed vaccines.
1: Sure. First of all, I, in my 31-year pediatric career, followed by 11 years in academic pediatrics, followed by six and a half years at Robin Hood Integrative, working with a lot of children whose parents were concerned about vaccine balance of risk and benefit. Um, studied vaccines for 10 years now, thousands of hours. But anyway, um, number one, in regard to children, the COVID vaccines um, are, in my opinion, bottom line, Drawing from really, I'm not, I haven't treated COVID, but I'm drawing my information from Dr. Peter McCullough, uh, Mm -hmm. arguably the world's expert, both in academic and in treating COVID in America, um, and others like him, American uh, frontline physicians, AAPS, Mm -hmm. the Association of American Physicians and Surgeons, and so on. And they're saying that because children are at such a low risk for death or hospitalization from COVID, even if they don't get treated, which is another subject, early treatment, but even without treatment, the probability of a child getting COVID and being hospitalized and or dying is lower than it is for influenza. And that's a fact that's not even debatable. It's admitted by the CDC. Mm-hmm. So since that's true, there's really no need for a vaccine, especially considering there's early treatment available. But right. let's go into the reality of the fact that Sooner or later, and probably sooner, I think there will be an EUA authorization, not approval, of the vaccines for children, different ages. The red flags that have come up with the VAERS vaccine adverse event recording system, and now acknowledged by the vaccine manufacturers, and listed as by the CDC as potential complications of the vaccines in children, it includes myocarditis, which have been thousands of cases in children. Children don't typically obviously get myocarditis out of the clear blue. And so that's a huge concern. Um, A journal article just published, I just read last night, Toxicology Reports with 127 references in the medical literature, summarizes the data about children. Why are we vaccinating children against COVID-19? And the authors conclude that children should not be there is no justification from the scientific evidence and i would argue from rational evidence there's just no rational or scientific argument to justify vaccinating children with covid vaccine in any circumstance period right i think scientific literature shows that but more right. he shows that the likelihood of a child dying from a covid vaccine is greater than the likelihood of a child being hospitalized with COVID.
0: Mm-hmm. I think I've seen recently um, specific to, and, I, and I'm interested in this specifically because I have a bunch of long lean boys that live in my household um, that for some reason, it seems like preteen athletic boys who are muscular and athletic and healthy seem to have elevated risk, Um, if I'm correct, they have a six times higher risk of hospitalization from vaccine injury than they do from COVID. Is that correct?
1: Absolutely true.
0: Yeah. And so we're talking about these lean, muscular, healthy boys that typically would be looked at as the healthiest that when vaccinated are having some of the worst reactions. Um, And so I guess the question becomes, Does the risk outweigh the benefit? And I think from what you're telling me that you would say
1: that, no, it does not. (laughs) So um, I I honestly believe, and I I really believe and would have no problem uh, telling someone on the medical board that I believe it. I'd tell anybody that. I believe that to give a child a COVID vaccine should be considered malpractice and Mm -hmm. is a crime against humanity. There's no justification for it whatsoever.
0: Well, let's talk about and I I don't know that we know a lot of these details yet, because it seems like a lot of things stay hidden. But from what I understand, they have been doing some research on five to 11 year olds. This is a smaller dose. And you know, it's probably going to be marketed as being somewhat different. What do we know so far about what is being proposed to be emergency use authorized? Do we know what's in that vaccine? do we know much about the research that's been done on five to 11 year old children?
1: Well, first of all, under EUA, under the authorization process prior to approval, as I understand it, the vaccine manufacturers are not required by law to disclose all ingredients that are called proprietary. Mm -hmm. So we do not know all the ingredients. We cannot know. Number two, this is most important. In the virology article I just referred to, the authors break down the data, the number of children, Pfizer, for example, their vaccine. And it's in the Pfizer's uh, information sheet available to physicians. The number of children that they included in the trials, for which they got only two months of data to get to the uh, emergency use authorization. Children less than 12, they had none. No child less than 12 was included in the trials. In the two month study in which they got the authorization, 12 to 15 years old, there were 46 children who got a vaccine, 42 a placebo. You need several hundred to several thousand to get any meaningful data. And the number of children, 16 to 17, was 66 got the vaccine, 68 placebo. So you're telling me <laughs>
0: that the emergency use authorization we have right now for 12 to 17 year olds is based on. About 100 kids.
1: Correct. And none of them under 12.
0: <clears throat> and so this proposed, quote, new vaccine that's a lower dose, that's going to be for 5 to 11-year-olds, it's proposed now, literally has zero research on that age group.
1: <clears throat> the, the, now, if there's a new authorization, I can't speak to the number of children included in whatever trials they've done because this is okay. the only information we have available.
0: Right. So I guess that might come out when they meet with the FDA in probably the next week or so, if we're correct. Right. right. Yeah. But I'm guessing it's probably not significantly larger, if at all. If, if I, I the think that's
1: correct. And the, and the length of time over which they compile data looking for adverse effects, which was two months in the currently authorized one, the length of time cannot be long because they've only been using it on adolescents for a few months. hmm
0: Now, with regular childhood vaccines, let's just compare for a moment. Um, In order for those to be authorized or approved, how many years does a typical childhood vaccine go through research before it becomes a standard of practice?
1: Yeah, most virologists whom I hear and read what they're saying say that the usual procedure is Several years to five to six years. Years, not months.
0: Right. And we're talking about two months. And then now, I forget how many millions of 12 to 17-year-olds have been, or 12 to 16-year-olds, I guess, because it was originally approved for 16 and older, have right. been have been inoculated with this vaccine that's based on the study of 100 kids.
1: Right. So basically, the children who are under under the EUA category who receive these vaccines are basically the trial. They're just mm-hmm. doing a trial on they want to do a trial on all the people in the world to find right. whether it's safe or not. They don't right. know. We don't know. Uh,
0: what, one thing that I think I hear with parents and, and I understand the sentiment is that they want to and they want to vaccinate their kids in order to protect society, and teachers, and older family members, and grandparents, and aunts, and uncles, and so forth. Will you talk to us just for a moment about the transmission, and what we know about transmission, especially from young kids, this 5 to 11 age group?
1: Sure, that's a great question. The current virology article, ironically, with its 127 references, does answer that question, and the answer is that First of all, these are not actually vaccines. They are literally treatments. And the reason is because vaccines by law and by regulation for patents for drugs require that the vaccine has to have an action where it um, reduces infection rate in individuals who take the vaccine, prevents infection, and therefore prevents transmission. These These treatments. Do not prevent infection, and they do not prevent transmission. That's a scientific statement, in fact, and can't be can't be refuted. So they're not technically vaccines to begin with, but leaving that aside and not getting into nuances of words um, to call them vaccines, which are not. but these vaccines really don't prevent infection or transmission. In fact, in recent months, the data from Israel and even Barnesville county and United States and other places when they track, they've got all the data and and actually comparing uh, when they're testing both vaccinated and unvaccinated. The CDC has manipulated and stopped recommending testing vaccinated people only, Uh, but in places where they've got the data, it's clear that the percent of people hospitalized uh, who have been vaccinated versus not vaccinated is basically unaffected whatsoever by the vaccines. So mm-hmm. It's it's not the, the narrative of we have a pandemic of the unvaccinated is simply categorically false. Right. We we and how about
0: started. specific specific to children? You know, spreading it to teachers in schools or spreading it to grandparents. What do we know about that?
1: We know two things. One, children uh, who are asymptomatic, and in fact anybody who's asymptomatic, does not spread COVID. You cannot spread COVID if you're not sick. Number two, children uh, have been rarely, if ever, transmit COVID to teachers or to adults uh, in the school environment.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, but, and
1: so the, the idea that we're going to prevent transmission infection is simply a myth. It's just absolutely, it's a talking point.
0: Right. Right. Um, and one thing that I think is incredibly important and, and, and largely ignored in the large on the larger scale, too, obviously, with all of these mandates and everything, natural immunity is not being considered at all. That, does, that seems to be irrelevant. But let's talk about natural immunity in kids, because I would imagine since we know because, you know, maybe an adult has a positive case and has symptoms, And then we go and we test the whole family and the kids will show positive, even though they have little to no symptoms. If anything, they have a sniffle. So arguably, there are many children that do have T-cells, antibodies to COVID-19 who never have tested positive and don't even know that they have that natural immunity, yet Again, I feel like that's going to be largely ignored in favor of vaccination, even though who knows there I mean, we could have that two thirds of the kids in the United states are are naturally immune, yet I know that they're going to push this vaccine. And so I my thought is, why aren't we testing instead of putting all this money into vaccinating, why aren't we looking at natural immunity? Yes, on a larger scale, but especially with kids when we know that they're at greater risk from vaccine injury just in general.
1: Yeah, it's, it's again, it's irrational and not supported by science to ignore the natural immunity. Mm-hmm. Natural immunity that conferred by natural infection is resistant, the body is uh, allowed to mount fences against the entire part of the virus, all the different components. The vaccine is limited to one component of the virus, the spike protein. That's the only mm-hmm. thing that the vaccine's actually uh, producing the body. And unfortunately, it's been found that the spike protein in the virus itself is responsible for a large part, most of the actual damage done from the vac- virus. So we're, right. we're doing a vaccine that produces a component to stimulate antibodies which causes the most damage in the virus, which is undoubtedly why this this is profusion of uh, unprecedented levels of red flags on adverse effects. Uh, Mm -hmm. Iceland, Sweden, Norway, and Denmark, all in the last three weeks have stopped giving vaccines to any person under age 30.
0: Right, right. And, And meanwhile, our mainstream media shuts that down, so. Real quick, this is not on our topic of discussion, but I think it's very important to mention is with um, several whistleblowers that came out through Project Veritas in the last week. um, You know, if, if for our listeners, if you've not been following along with that, it's it's been interesting to watch for sure. It seems that there's been some leaked internal emails from Pfizer that indicate that there actually are aborted fetus cells in the Pfizer vaccine. We've been told all along that there are not. And so do you have any updates or insight on that?
1: No, I saw the same thing you did, and that is true. And um, uh, from other sources I've seen, uh, I'm convinced that the the primary vaccines now being used, the mRNA and Johnson J&Js, uh DNA vaccine uh, transmitted by an actual virus, DNA when people don't understand that when they hear about a a, a viral vector, what that means is the vaccine is giving somebody the actual the, the component of the vaccine is embedded within a, a an actual pathogen. Mm-hmm. so but but that is, most of those vaccines do contain some kind of effect uh, fetal cell, derived from abortion components.
0: Mm-hmm. Right. And, and I, I, well, it just baffles me on some level, too, because I know five or six individuals personally who have had their religious exemptions denied because they've talked about this issue and been told, well, no, you can take the Pfizer vaccine. That only applies to some vaccines. Meanwhile, it's coming out that, well, no, we actually just don't want people to know that. And so I share that part just because I think it's so important for us as, a, as consumers, as citizens, to make sure that we are continuing to ask questions of how can this be? And why is it that these things are getting shut down? And why is it that this information isn't more widespread? And, and we need to continue critically thinking and asking questions and pushing back. And for the parents out there, I mean, I know that I'm expecting, I mean, I'm fortunate that my kids go to a school that respects our, our, our opinion, our, our medical decisions as individuals and as parents, but I know that many parents are going to be faced with the challenge of what am I going to do with this? And I think it's important that we just remind ourselves that our bodies, we have autonomy over our bodies and it is not the school system or the government. And that goes for our children. We have very important decisions to make when, as for our children. And it's very easy to cave to pressure, and it's very difficult not to cave to pressure. And I think this is the time that we have to band together to stand strong and really do our own research and don't just take any of our word for it go and look at the information yourself and um and and I'll try to link to the the study that you're that you've mentioned in our in our show notes I know sometimes those can be difficult to share but we'll do our best to get that out there so that you know parents have this at their disposal and there there is power in numbers and there is um, and you're not alone. If you feel like you're the only one that feels this way and has questions and concerns about what's going to happen next for your kids, you're not. I can promise you that because I hear from 25 people at least every single day um, that are feeling that same way. And so um, we we are not being required to do anything. Sure, is life getting harder? Absolutely, but we're not being required, and we still have those decisions and choices to make. Um, because we still have a constitution, even though it's being challenged. So any closing remarks from you, Dr. Ravna?
1: Yeah, two things. One, uh, going back to the question from parents, uh, 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 laudably uh, considering that giving their child a vaccine might help protect society, whatever. Not only does it not do that, but <clears throat> it turns out that the vaccine program, according to some, Dr. McCullough, Geert and Bosch is a virologist who worked for uh, one of the vaccine develops vaccines. They said that this has been a tragic blunder of epic proportions because when you give vaccines widespread during a pandemic, you select out. It puts pressure to select out uh, more contagious and more resistant pathogens. Come in Delta variant. Mm-hmm. Delta variant is largely a result of the vaccine program. Right. The being solved by. It. And the other one final comment, uh, a a post that I did, somebody else made it and I copied it and sent it. If you can question it, it's science. If you cannot question it, it's propaganda. People Mm -hmm. should reflect on that. And it's true because even physicians are putting up anything on Facebook or public media. If you even question safety, give facts about their data, takes it down, boom. So it's all propaganda.
0: You know what? I'm sorry. You made me think of one last follow-up question. I know that this summer, RSV in kids, especially, but in adults too, just kind of was like everywhere in the middle of the summer. And there are different theories as to why that might be. But during your career, did you ever see such a spike in RSV infections during the summer. And do you think that the rise in that virus might have something to do with the way that we're approaching this pandemic?
1: As far as no, in my 31 years in primary care pediatric practice, we almost, most kids got RSV, but it was in the winter. I don't Mm -hmm. ever even think of it in the summer. So I think it's unprecedented. And I'm, the cause we know now that these, uh, quote, vaccines, so-called vaccines, actually for a period of a a couple of weeks suppress the immune system, the innate immune system. That's why even the CDC recommends that they talk about for the first couple of weeks after the vaccine, you're more vulnerable to COVID Mm -hmm. than you were before because your innate immune system is suppressed. Therefore, it's to me logical and quite rational and likely that the explanation for this RSV huge outburst is, is basically triggered by the vaccine program.
0: Mhm. Right. Yes. And I, I know I had one kid with it in the middle of the summer myself. So, um, and he's the one that's in daycare. So that's interesting. But anyway, <laughs> um, well, thank you so much for your time today, Dr. Reveneau. I know our listeners always appreciate when you come and join us. And we I, I so value your perspective and respect um, your your views on everything. I know you've done re- more research than probably anybody I know for sure um, over the last 18 months. And we sure appreciate your time. Thank you so much for joining us. And I hope you have a great day. Thank you, Emily. Thank you.
1: Yeah.